Chapter Twenty of A Gentleman of Leisure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Gentleman of Leisure by P. G. Whithouse. Chapter Twenty A Lesson in Piquet. Lord Drever, meanwhile, having left the waterside, lit a cigarette, and proceeded to make a reflective tour of the grounds. He felt aggrieved with the world. Molly's desertion in the canoe with Jimmy did not trouble him. He had other sorrows. One is never at one's best and sunniest when one has been forced by a ruthless uncle into abandoning the girl one loves and becoming engaged to another to whom one is indifferent. Something of a jauntist tinge stains one's outlook on life in such circumstances. Moreover, Lord Drever was not by nature an introspective young man, but, examining his position as he walked along, he found himself wondering whether it was not a little unheroic. He came to the conclusion that perhaps it was. Of course, Uncle Thomas could make it deucedly unpleasant for him if he kicked. That was the trouble. If only he had even, say, a couple of thousand a year of his own, he might make a fight for it. But, dash it, Uncle Tom could cut off supplies to such a frightful extent if there was trouble that he would have to go on living at Drever indefinitely, without so much as a fearful quid to call his own. Imagination boggled at the prospect. In the summer and autumn, when there was shooting, his lordship was not indisposed to stay at the home of his father's. But all the year round? Better a broken heart inside the radius than a sound one in the country in the winter. But by gad, mused his lordship, if I had as much as a couple, yes, dash it, even a couple of thousand a year, I'd chance it and ask Katie to marry me, dashed if I wouldn't." He walked on, drawing thoughtfully at his cigarette. The more he reviewed the situation, the less he liked it. There was only one bright spot in it, and that was the feeling that now money must surely get a shade less tight. Extracting the precious ore from Sir Thomas hitherto had been like pulling back teeth out of a bulldog. But now, on the strength of this infernal engagement, surely he might reasonably be expected to scatter largesse to some extent. His lordship was just wondering whether, if approached in a softened mood, the other might not disgorge something quite big, when a large warm raindrop fell on his hand. From the bushes round about came an ever-increasing patter. The sky was leaden. He looked round him for shelter. He had reached the rose garden in the course of his perambulations. At the far end was a summer house. He turned up his coat collar and ran. As he drew near, he heard a slow and dirge like whistling proceeding from the interior. Plunging in out of breath, just as the deluge began, he found Hargate seated at the little wooden table with an earnest expression on his face. The table was covered with cards. Hargate had not yet been compelled to sprain his wrist, having adopted the alternative of merely refusing invitations to play billiards. "'Hello, Hargate,' said his lordship. "'Isn't it coming down by Jove?' Hargate glanced up, nodded without speaking, and turned his attention to the cards once more. He took one from the pack in his left hand, looked at it, hesitated for a moment, as if doubtful whereabouts on the table it would produce the most artistic effect, and finally put it face upwards. Then he moved another card from the table and put it on top of the other one. 
Throughout the performance he whistled painfully. His lordship regarded him with annoyance. "'That looks frightfully exciting,' he said disparagingly. "'What are you playing at, Patience?' Hargate nodded again, this time without looking up. "'Oh, don't sit there looking like a frog,' said Lord Drever irritably. "'Talk, man!' Hargate gathered up the cards and proceeded to shuffle them in a meditative manner, whistling the while. "'Oh, stop it!' said his lordship. Hardgate nodded and stopped. "'Look here,' said Lord Drever, "'this is boring me stiff. Let's have a game at something, anything to pass away the time. Hang this rain! We shall be cooped up here till dinner at this rate. Ever played piquet? I could teach you in five minutes.' A look almost of awe came into Hargate's face, the look of one who sees a miracle performed before his eyes. For years he had been using all the large stock of diplomacy at his command to induce callow youths to play piquet with him, and here was this admirable young man, this pearl among young men, positively offering to teach him the game. It was too much happiness. What had he done to deserve this? He felt as a toil-worn lion might feel if some antelope, instead of making its customary beeline for the horizon, were to trot up and insert its head between his jaws. "'I—I shouldn't mind being shown the idea,' he said. He listened attentively while Lord Drever explained at some length the principles which govern the game of piquet. Every now and then he asked a question. It was evident that he was beginning to grasp the idea of the game. "'What exactly is re-peaking?' he asked as his lordship paused. "'It's like this,' said his lordship, returning to his lecture. "'Yes, I see now,' said the neophyte. They began playing. Lord Drever, as was only to be expected in a contest between teacher and student, won the first two hands. Hargate won the next. "'I've got the hang of it all right now,' he said complacently. "'It's a simple sort of game. Make it more exciting, don't you think, if we played for something?' "'All right,' said Lord Drever slowly. "'If you like.' He would not have suggested it himself, but, after all, dash it, if the man simply asked for it, it was not his fault if the winning of a hand should have given the fellow the impression that he knew all that there was to know about piquet. Of course piquet was a game where skill was practically bound to win. But, after all, Hargate probably had plenty of money. He could afford it. "'All right,' said his lordship again. "'How much?' something fairly moderate. Ten bob a hundred?" There is no doubt that his lordship ought, at this suggestion, to have corrected the novice's notion that ten shillings a hundred was fairly moderate. He knew that it was possible for a poor player to lose four hundred points in a twenty minutes game, and usual for him to lose two hundred. But he let the thing go. "'Very well,' he said. Twenty minutes later Hargate was looking somewhat ruefully at the score-sheet. "'I owe you eighteen shillings,' he said. "'Shall I pay you now, or shall we settle up in a lump after we've finished?' "'What about stopping now?' said Lord Drever. "'It's quite fine out.' "'No, let's go on. I've nothing to do till dinner, and I don't suppose you have.' His lordship's conscience made one last effort. "'You'd much better stop, you know, Hargate, really,' he said, 
You can lose a frightful lot at this game." "'My dear Dreamer,' said Hargate stiffly, "'I can look after myself, thanks. Of course, if you think you are risking too much, by all means—' "'Oh, if you don't mind,' said his lordship, outraged, "'I'm only too frightfully pleased. Only remember, I warned you.' "'I'll bear it in mind. By the way, before we start, care to make it a sovereign a hundred? Lord Dreaver could not afford to play piquet for a sovereign a hundred, or indeed to play piquet for money at all. But after his adversary's innuendo it was impossible for a young gentleman of spirit to admit the humiliating fact. He nodded. "'About time, I fancy,' said Hargate, looking at his watch an hour later, "'that we were going in to dress for dinner.' His lordship made no reply. He was wrapped in thought. "'Let's see, that's twenty pounds you owe me, isn't it?' continued Hargate. "'Shocking bad luck you had!' They went out into the rose-garden. "'Jolly everything smells after the rain,' said Hargate, who seemed to have struck a conversational patch. "'Freshened everything up!' His lordship did not appear to have noticed it. He seemed to be thinking of something else. His air was pensive and abstracted. "'There's just time,' said Hargate, looking at his watch again, "'for a short stroll. I want to have a talk with you.' "'Oh,' said Lord Dreaver. His air did not belie his feelings. He looked pensive, and he was pensive. It was deuced awkward, this twenty pounds business. Hargate was watching him covertly. It was his business to know other people's business, and he knew that Lord Dreaver was impecunious, and depended for supplies entirely on a prehensile uncle. For the success of the proposal he was about to make he relied on this fact. "'Who's this man Pitt?' asked Hargate. "'Oh, a pal of mine,' said his lordship. "'Why?' "'I can't stand the fellow.' "'I think he's a good chap,' said his lordship. "'In fact,' remembering Jimmy's good Samaritanism, "'I know he is. Why don't you like him?' I don't know. I don't." Oh, said his lordship, indifferently. He was in no mood to listen to the likes and dislikes of other men. "'Look here, Dreaver,' said Hargate, "'I want you to do something for me. I want you to get Pitt out of the place.' Lord Dreaver eyed him curiously. "'Eh?' he said. Hargate repeated his remark. "'You seem to have mapped out quite a program for me.' said Lord Dreaver. "'Get him out of it,' continued Hargate vehemently. Jimmy's prohibition against billiards had hit him hard. He was suffering the torments of Tantalus. The castle was full of young men of the kind to whom he most resorted, easy marks every one, and here he was, simply through Jimmy, careened like a disabled battleship. It was maddening. "'Make him go. You invited him here.' He doesn't expect to stop indefinitely, I suppose. If you left, he'd have to, too. What you must do is to go back to London tomorrow. You can easily make some excuse. He'll have to go with you. Then you can drop him in London and come back. That's what you must do." A delicate pink flush might have been seen to spread itself over Lord Dreaver's face. He began to look like an angry rabbit. 
He had not a great deal of pride in his composition, but the thought of the ignominious role which Hargate was sketching out for him stirred what he had to its shallow bottom. Talking on, Hargate managed to add the last straw. "'Of course,' he said, "'that money you lost to me at Piquet. What was it? Twenty? Twenty pounds, wasn't it?' "'Well, we will look on that as cancelled, of course. That will be all right.' His lordship exploded. "'Will it?' he cried, pink to the ears. "'Will it, by George? I'll pay you every frightful penny of it to-morrow, and then you can clear out instead of Pitt. What do you take me for, I should like to know?' "'A fool if you refuse my offer.' "'I've a jolly good mind to give you a most frightful kicking.' "'I shouldn't try it if I were you. It's not the sort of game you'd shine at. Better stick to Piquet.' If you think I can't pay your rotten money—' "'I do. But if you can, so much the better. Money is always useful. I may be a fool in some ways. You understate it, my dear man. But I'm not a cad. You're getting quite rosy, Dreaver. Wrath is good for the complexion. And if you think you can bribe me, you never made a bigger mistake in your life.' "'Yes, I did.' said Hargate, when I thought you had some glimmerings of intelligence. But if it gives you any pleasure to behave like the juvenile lead in a melodrama, by all means do. Personally, I shouldn't have thought the game would be worth the candle. But if your keen sense of honour compels you to pay the twenty pounds, all right. You mention tomorrow? That'll suit me. So we'll let it go at that." He walked off leaving Lord Drever filled with that comfortable glow which comes to the weak man who for once has displayed determination. He felt that he must not go back from his dignified standpoint. That money would have to be paid, and on the morrow. Hargate was the sort of man who could, and would, make it exceedingly unpleasant for him if he failed. A debt of honour was not a thing to be trifled with. But he felt quite safe. He knew he could get the money when he pleased. It showed, he reflected philosophically, how out of evil cometh good. His greater misfortune, the engagement, would, as it were, neutralize the loss, for it was ridiculous to suppose that Sir Thomas, having seen his ends accomplished, and being presumably in a spacious mood in consequence, would not be amenable to a request for a mere twenty pounds. He went on into the hall. He felt strong and capable. He had shown Hargate the stuff there was in him. He was Spenny Drever, the man of blood and iron, the man with whom it was best not to trifle. But it was really, come to think of it, uncommonly lucky that he was engaged to Molly. He recoiled from the idea of attempting, unfortified by that fact, to extract twenty pounds from Sir Thomas for a card debt. In the hall he met Saunders. "'I have been looking for your lordship,' said the butler. "'Eh? Well, here I am.' "'Just so, your lordship. Miss McEachern entrusted me with this note to deliver to you in the event of her not being able to see you before dinner personally, your lordship.' "'Right-o. Thanks.' He started to go upstairs, opening the envelope as he went. What could the girl be writing to him about? Surely she wasn't going to start sending him love-letters or any of that frightful rot. 
deuced difficult it would be to play up to that sort of thing. He stopped on the landing to read the note, and at the first line his jaw fell. The envelope fluttered to the ground. "'Oh, my sainted aunt!' he moaned, clutching at the banisters. "'Now I am in the soup!' End of chapter 20